It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. UFOs, psychic powers, chemtrails. To learn about mysterious events, you listen to the Stuff They Don't Want You to Know podcast. And here's where it gets crazy. Now you can read all about your favorite conspiracy theories in the Stuff They Don't Want You to Know book from the creators of the podcast. Dive into a smart, witty explanation of the unexplainable, packed with amazing illustrations. Available now. Order today at StuffYouShouldReadBooks.com or wherever you buy your books. Welcome to iHeartRadio Communities, a public affairs special focusing on the biggest issues impacting you this week. Here's Ryan Gorman. Thanks for joining us here on iHeartRadio Communities. I'm Ryan Gorman, and we have some important conversations lined up for you. In a moment, I'll talk to a healthcare professional about the toll the pandemic has taken on healthcare workers across the country, along with lessons learned about how COVID-19 impacted our healthcare system and where things stand right now when it comes to the spread of the virus. Then I'll talk to Dr. Sally Ann Coleman-King, Medical Director of the Colorectal Cancer Control Program at the CDC for Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. Right now to get things started, I'm joined by Dr. Sarah Stevens, the Network Medication Safety Officer for Honor Health in Scottsdale, Arizona. Dr. Stevens, thanks so much for coming on the show. And let's start with a big picture overview of where we are with the spread of the virus right now. Well, I mean, I think everyone is, uh, you know, breathing a sigh of relief. It feels a lot better to folks, probably because where we were at was, you know, so enormously overwhelming. And so for that, it's awesome. Um, what we're trying to get out there and communicate, though, is although our, our Omicron, Omicron cases have declined greatly and we're, we're seeing some relief, we still have a pretty large number of cases happening across the world and in our country. And so we're we're still promoting vaccination to prevent, you know, additional hospitalizations and deaths and also to prevent the spread of any new variants that might come about as the, as the virus, you know, does its thing across our country. So still important to protect yourself, but thank goodness it, it does not feel the same as it did a year ago, right? Would you say we're at the back end of the Omicron wave? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think we are. We're, we're definitely seeing some relief in our hospitals um, and our health systems. Our cases are, you know, we were actually laughing about it. Um, well, not really laughing about it, but discussing that, you know, when, when COVID first started, when we hit the number of cases we have currently in Honor Health, we were starting to get nervous. And now we're breathing this huge sigh of relief because our, you know, our numbers across the network have come down significantly. So, I think our hospitalized cases were definitely on that downward downward trend. But as we've seen previously, this disease is pretty unpredictable. Despite what we think we know, we do get surprised. So we're hoping that we don't see a new variant that becomes predominant, that our, that our treatments are less effective for. So again, just, um, you know, really, really working with, you know, our staff, our community, our kids, everyone to ensure um, vaccination is, is prominent in the community is, is really key and in, in keeping this at bay and, and reducing it further. 
Based on what you've seen throughout the course of this pandemic, how would you compare the different waves that we've experienced? We had that initial wave when the virus first hit. Then we had that wave towards the end of, of 2020 into 2021 around the holidays, then Delta, then Omicron. How did they compare, in your opinion? Um, they compared in that they were all really difficult. <laughs> I mean, I mean right. the simplest way to say it is, all of them, I mean, just, I am coming at this from a um, healthcare perspective, sure. and, I, and I'm not a frontline healthcare worker that was really dealing with the day-to-day patient care, but as a leader in a health system, I mean, they were all incredibly challenging. The first wave, though, was all about what do we do with this? How, we don't have supplies. We, we, we don't know much about the virus. How do we contain it, you know, and, and how do we, we stop it completely? And and that sort of morphed wave after wave of, you know, then we're, we're, how do we get everyone vaccinated? Then we have some treatments that have varying effectiveness, you know, and our supply chain improves. So we have masks now, but, but we may not have the treatments. And so it's really been, I don't know, putting out fire after fire and then being very nimble and able to pivot with new challenges continuously. So once one thing resolved, a new one presented itself and, and that's still continuing now, although it it feels like we're we're into more of a, I guess, day to day management of crisis that feels um, feels more like normal. I guess if if you could say that, um, I I do think now the focus has shifted less about keeping people out of the hospital because we're seeing those rates come down and we're not overwhelming our healthcare systems like we did at the be- excuse me at the beginning. So now it's really a shift of we need to continue, um, you know, pr- promoting prevention strategies so that that doesn't happen again. And so that we can, you know, completely keep this thing at bay to being endemic in our society, but not something that we're worried about um, will, you know, hospitalize or, or result in death for thousands and thousands of Americans. I'm Ryan Gorman, joined by Dr. Sarah Stevens, the Network Medication Safety Officer for Honor Health in Scottsdale, Arizona. We're, of course, talking about the state of the pandemic. Those you work with in the healthcare sector through those different waves, especially, you know, after the vaccine started to roll out, then we get hit with Delta, then after that, Omicron. What kind of toll did that take on those in the healthcare profession? Wow, well, that's... That's a really great question. Um, it continues to be quite overwhelming. We, um, you know, a, a year ago when, I mean, we were finishing up our vaccination pot around this time last year, um, the, the one I was part of with Honor Health, we vaccinated about 15,000 people. And it was the most incredible, hopeful time and most memorable part of, of all of our careers. We, we talk about it to this day, like that the hope and you know, the, the way that we all came together for a single cause um, to help vaccinate the masses was incredible. You know, and, and then we all saw what, what happened after the vaccine came out and the controversy and, you know, any and all types of information out there everywhere that were confusing people, making them fearful, you know, and, and I have great empathy for people who are, you know, afraid of, of certain treatments. Um, and how they were approved and, and, you know, trying to understand the science behind things without maybe the, the knowledge or expertise of, of how that all works. I mean, it's, it was really hard to navigate. Lots of information coming at folks. 
So then we had that kind of backlash, it felt like almost. And I think that took a real toll on our healthcare providers. And then it was a small percentage of healthcare providers, you know, that were sort of, um, you know, against vaccines, felt uncomfortable with it, definitely didn't feel comfortable with being mandated to do so or not by any authority. So, I mean, it just got a little hairy, <laughs> to, to put it lightly, for all of us that really were just trying to improve the safety and care of our patients. And so it, it's been a lot to maneuver, but um, I think we are coming out on the other side where we can think less about this and more about what we used to think about every day as healthcare professionals. Um, but I do see it still taking a toll. We have, you know, staffing shortages across the board. We hear a lot about nursing, but it, it is impacting not only nursing, um, but, you know, pharmacies impacted greatly, labs, you know, PT, uh, respiratory therapy. I mean, there's all sorts of professions that are short staffed and people that are just making the decision largely to get out of healthcare because of the stressors. So it, it is difficult. Um, I have hope that 2022 will bring us some, some good stuff. But um, as leaders, especially, we're, we're trying really hard to work on staff resiliency and how to make the people you have so valued and um, offload some work so that they don't feel so overwhelmed and stressed. Because even though our COVID patients have um, gone down, um, there's still a lot of a lot of other you know patients that need care for and within the region that you work in, were there any moments during the course of this pandemic where you weren't sure if your healthcare system in particular was going to hold? You know, I I don't recall a point where you know Honor Health was at that point. There were definitely long days, long nights, and a lot of contingency planning. Um, that took place, but we we were fortunate enough to, I think, stay ahead of what was coming um, by various metrics. We were kind of following um, and our ability to, you know, resource, um, leverage, you know, some federal resources as well um, and, and keep on top of our supplies where we did okay. That doesn't mean the staff didn't feel like it was um, ground zero for a bit, but I I, we were never at the brink of like closing a facility or, or mm-hmm. things like that, but we definitely were monitoring for like contingency planning on and other levels of, you know, when is care. We were definitely looking at daily, like, do we have the resources and supplies and ability to safely enough care for patients or do we have to consider right. that? And we never had to close or anything like that, but we did have to reduce our capacity because of staffing um, in this last wave and such. So it, it made it really hard um, because you, you couldn't care for everybody that you wanted to. I'm Ryan Gorman, joined by Dr. Sarah Stevens, the Network Medication Safety Officer for Honor Health in Scottsdale, Arizona. Are there lessons that you've learned through this experience and your colleagues have learned through this experience that you think, even if we're not in the middle of a pandemic, We'll be able to apply some of those lessons to everyday healthcare. Yeah, I guess I don't know. I've gone I've gone through the, the peaks and valleys of the pandemic, just like everybody else in this, in this country. But my main takeaway is really is really empathy. I think there there was a, a long stretch of time where, when people had differing point of views, we you know on this 
Um, it was really easy for healthcare to dismiss people who didn't believe did, that we didn't feel believed in the science around vaccination and preventative strategies and that sort of thing. Cause it's like no brainer to us, like, come on, why aren't y'all on board? Um, and now I've, I've really spent time ruminating about the why behind quite a few people that um, are still to this day uncomfortable with vaccination and, and the prevention strategies that we've outlined and the CDC's outlined. Um, so I, I try to come at it with a place in a, from a place of kindness. And I just, I really, from the bottom of my heart, want people to feel comfortable with what the recommendations are. So that is my takeaway um, is the empathy. Um, as far as from a health system standpoint or healthcare perspective standpoint, I think the takeaway is really um, preparation. I think as a country, we were not as prepared as we should have been. And um, we were not adhering to the warning signs that we came, that we saw coming. And that's a huge lesson learned. Um, this, this pandemic really showed us all of our holes, right? All of the, the weaknesses yeah. that we actually were there and we didn't act upon. So that would be the other takeaway. But I, I think, think we all learned that together, right? Going back to the vaccine issue for a moment, because you have some people, maybe they've gotten two doses of the mRNA vaccine and they're contemplating whether or not to go and get that booster shot. Maybe some who haven't been vaccinated up to this point think that with the Omicron wave coming down, why bother? Uh, what would you say to them about the vaccines, the booster shots, uh, those different forms of protection against COVID-19? Um, you for sure need the vaccination and you for sure need the booster shot if you're, the, you're in the age group that that applies. Um, we know the effectiveness is much greater with that booster. It's really needed. Um, I think eventually we'll see that it's just a three-shot series and that's what's going to be required in, in adults to be, to be considered fully vaccinated. I, I get people's um, opinion that, you know, the cases are coming down. We probably are close to herd immunity with everyone that's been infected or is vaccinated. Like, why should I bother? Especially those who are maybe fearful of injections, don't want to deal with feeling kind of junky for a couple of days because um, usually there's, you know, you feel a little sick yeah. after, after getting your COVID vaccination. I get it. However, um, we have data. We have really good data, right? If you're, when you compare vaccinated versus unvaccinated, those who are unvaccinated are five times more likely to even get COVID. And I know that people that are vaccinated can get it. But if you are not vaccinated, you're five times more likely to get it. You're like 16 times more likely to get hospitalized when you get it. And then you're close to like 70 times more likely to die. So those are not great odds. And then I would also encourage people to really consider if you, if you want to risk infection to provide yourself with immunity, you're not only at higher risk of the hospitalization and death, but the, the long COVID. And long COVID is something we're still learning about. We don't know what this disease will do to people long term, but we already know that there are people that have long term issues with taste, with smell, with breathing abnormalities, also mental health conditions, brain fog, depression, anxiety. There are things that this disease is doing to people that we don't yet fully understand. So why risk that? Um, I would I would much prefer, you know, a couple days of a low-grade fever and general feeling yucky 
With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. To, per- to have any chance in- at preventing um, what this disease can do to you if you're infected. I'm Ryan Gorman, joined by Dr. Sarah Stevens, the Network Medication Safety Officer for Honor Health in Scottsdale, Arizona. There have been a number of changes to recommendations when it comes to wearing masks and things like that. What can you tell us about those changes? What do people need to know? Because I think there's been quite a bit of confusion. Do masks work? Which masks work? When should we wear them? What's the latest guidance on all of that? I would recommend people lean on the CDC for their recommendations. They've been pretty great about modifying recommendations, and they did so recently to better reflect what's going on in society and what we know about the current spread um, and issues with, um, you know, overwhelming hospitals or not, and the impact of society. So their recommendations now are generally mask wearing is not needed, except for in areas where, um, you know, there are certain other factors or certain other metrics that are met. And they're including things now, um, such as what's your hospital capacity um, for COVID patients and that sort of thing. We know masks help reduce the spread. They're not 100%, but they are effective in helping reduce the spread. If both people are wearing a mask, then your risk of transmission is much lower. So we do know that. And I think there's vulnerable patient populations that, you know, based on your own personal risk tolerance, you may want to wear a mask because vaccines aren't as effective in you because you're immunocompromised, or maybe you did have a true contraindication to the vaccine things like that. Um, I think we're at a point now where Omicron is so transmissible, we're likely all kind of come in contact with it in some capacity at some point. And so your own risk tolerance, protecting yourself to the best of your ability and vaccines really are the number one way to do that. Um, I think that's what you have to consider. And some people will still choose to wear a mask, but I think it's wise that the CDC has lessened that um, given what we're seeing now with with COVID rates um, and what our society looks like now after vaccines and massive rates of infection across the country. Any advice to parents who are trying to decide whether or not children they have who are of age to receive the vaccine should get vaccinated? Yeah, I mean, my advice to, to parents is to get your, your child vaccinated. Um, we, we have good data. I, you know, I spent my, I'm a pharmacist by training and a medication safety officer specialist. So my job is to ensure safe use of medications. And when you look at the data and how these vaccines came to market and also how the post-market surveillance is ongoing, I feel really comfortable with the safety of these vaccines in children. Um, it's, it's something to certainly um, consider and get done for your child to, again, prevent the risk of hospitalization and death in a very unpredictable disease. It appears that kids do fare a little better than adults, but just in January alone, there were like 2 million COVID cases among kids. So it's, it's happening for sure. And 
setting up your kid for success, right? Uh, giving them the best shot at avoiding a, a severe issue and potential long-term complication that we don't yet know of when you get the disease, I think is really important. And finally, we'll have you look into your crystal ball here and give us your thoughts on the future with COVID. Is this a situation where you think we're going to need vaccine boosters every year, like flu shots? Or how do you see this playing out, especially over the next few months? I hope not. I guess we'll, I, it remains to be seen, of course, because we're all you know, undergoing all of this research in real time. But I have, I'm not an immunologist, but I have heard immunologists speak about our memory cells, um, that the mRNA vac- vaccines are, are basically utilizing for the immunogenicity with, um, with how the vaccines work against COVID. And those, those memory cells are, are really robust and helpful and it's possible that you wouldn't need an annual shot just like some of our other vaccines um, are not needed annually so we'll see um, I, I hope not but it's possible I also think um, you know if, if we don't do a good job with, with vaccination rates to prevent new variants from emerging right because the more the vaccine rep, or sorry not vaccine the more the, the infection or COVID goes from person to person and affects those, the more likely it is to mutate and become more virulent, potentially. Um, we may need a totally different vaccine to be effective against that. I think we got lucky with Omicron that our vaccine was still effective, but it's possible something could change and then it's not. And then we have to pivot and figure out a whole new strategy. And I'm, I'm really hoping that that doesn't happen and that, um, next year, we're just kind of living with this, and we're all still protected, at least those who have been vaccinated. Dr. Sarah Stevens, the Network Medication Safety Officer for Honor Health in Scottsdale, Arizona, with some insight into the healthcare profession during this pandemic and the latest on COVID-19 and the COVID-19 vaccines. Dr. Stevens, thanks so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. You're very welcome. This month is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month, and experts say that it's never been more important for men and women to routinely get screened for this disease. Colorectal cancer is the second leading cancer killer, but it can be preventable with routine screening. Unfortunately, too many people have put off these screenings, especially during COVID-19. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention has a campaign called Screen for Life to urge people to get screened for colorectal cancer. Joining us to talk about this issue is Dr. Sally Ann Coleman-King. She's Medical Director of the Colorectal Cancer Control Program at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Thank you so much, Dr. Coleman-King, for joining us today. I'm happy to be with you. Thank you. I don't know that anyone is all that excited to talk about colorectal cancer and screening, but this is a really important health issue for our country. Why should people pay attention to colorectal cancer and screening for it? Well, I don't know, Ryan, but I have to admit that I love talking about colorectal cancer <laughs> and screening it. It's just an important topic. And I feel like we should all be talking more about it because the more we talk about it, the more people will recognize the importance of screening. And March is National Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. So this is the perfect time to be talking about it. Um, because like you said, unfortunately, colorectal cancer is still a serious problem in our country. It's the second leading cancer killer in the nation for men and women. But the good news is that we can prevent it with routine screenings because these screenings can help find those precancerous polyps before they become cancerous. And screening can also find cancers early when the treatment works best. For colorectal cancer, screening is particularly important because 
with colorectal cancer, people don't always have symptoms. And that's why we have the Screen for Life campaign. It's to encourage people to then talk with their doctors about screening. And why the big push for screening now? Does it have to do in part with the pandemic? Well, it's always been important for people to get screened regularly for colorectal cancer, Ryan. But two things have happened that make the need for people to get screened especially critical right now. The first is that colorectal screenings um, have dropped over the past few years during COVID-19. And as you can imagine, many of us delayed getting screening during the pandemic and instead just focused on our urgent healthcare needs and procedures. And that means there are a lot of people who should have been screened in 2020 and 2021 that just didn't do it. And the second reason is that because experts like the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force is now recommending that people get screened earlier. So now we're recommending that people start getting screened at age 45. And that's a full five years earlier than we were recommending in the past. The recommendation used to be to get screened after age 50. So there are millions of people out there between the ages of 45 and 50 who may not know that they're supposed to start getting screened for colorectal cancer. This is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. I'm Ryan Gorman, and I'm joined right now by Dr. Sally Ann Coleman-King. She's Medical Director of the Colorectal Cancer Control Program at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Now that you're getting people's attention about how they should get screened for colorectal cancer, what specifically should they do? Well, if you're 45 or older, male or female, you should talk with your doctor about getting screened for colorectal cancer. It can truly save your life. And I recommend people should call their doctor even today and set up an appointment to talk about their options for routine screening tests. They have to work with their doctor to decide which test is exactly right for them. And it's important to know that there are a range of options for screening. They include stool-based tests, which can be done at home, flexible sigmoidoscopy, colonoscopy, and CT colonoscopy. And of course, it's always important to remind people to keep in mind that if you, if you have at any point noticed a change in your bowel habits, blood in your stool, or abdominal pains, aches, or cramps that don't go away, you should always contact your doctor. Also, some may be at higher risk for colorectal cancer if they have inflammatory bowel disease, a genetic syndrome, or a personal family history of colorectal cancer or polyps. And this could mean they need to be screened earlier than age 45 and more often. So that's why talking with your doctor is so important. People can also learn more by visiting our Screen for Life website. It's found at cdc.gov, Screen for Life, which is all one word. This website has information on how you can prevent colorectal cancer and ways to encourage others to get screened. And again, that's cdc.gov slash Screen for Life, all one word. And is a colonoscopy the only way to get screened for colorectal cancer? Isn't that the one where you got to drink that bad tasting medicine the day before the test and then things get really interesting after you drink it? Well, there are several options for screening, including stool tests, which can be done at home, and as well as colonoscopies and other procedures. That's why you need to talk with your doctor to decide which test is best for you. And Ryan, keep in mind that every screening test you or your doctor choose will need some sort of prep, whether it's making the appointment or the actual exam itself. Um, also, Also, keep in mind that if your doctor finds something a little unusual or irregular in any of your initial screenings, they may recommend a colonoscopy to get more information about what's going on. But when you're thinking about a colonoscopy, um, you just schedule the test, prepare for it the day before, but then it's important to take a little time off from work the day of the colonoscopy. But I have to say, this is how I look at it. Just a day or two of planning and prep, and then that gives me long-term peace of mind. 
And then I've done my part in keeping my body healthy. Absolutely. This is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. I'm Ryan Gorman, joined by Dr. Sally Ann Coleman-King. She's Medical Director of the Colorectal Cancer Control Program at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. You've spoken a couple of times about how people should get screened starting at age 45 and that they should get screened routinely. It's not a one and done thing, is it? How frequently should people be getting screened? That's absolutely right. One of the most important things for people to know is that they should start routine screening at age 45, and then they should continue getting screened at regular intervals. How frequently those screenings should take place is something that you and your doctor will discuss. For some people, it could be 10 years between screening, and for others with a family history of colorectal cancer or who have more precancerous polyps, it may be more often. What about people who have no family history of colorectal cancer? Does this guidance apply to them? I'm so glad you asked. Yes, absolutely. Everyone 45 years of age and older should get screened for colorectal cancer. And you need to get screened even if you have no family history. And actually, most colorectal cancers occur in people with no family history of the disease. Mm. And, and are some people or groups more at risk for colorectal cancer? Yeah, some groups are more impacted than others. And with these differences in mind, we see African-Americans and Hispanics have a higher rate of death from colorectal cancer, unfortunately. But also, as we think about risk factors for colorectal cancer, it's important to consider things that can be changed. And those are lifestyle factors that may make you at higher risk for colorectal cancer. These include things like lack of physical activity, a diet low in fruits and vegetables, a low fiber, high fat diet, or a diet high in processed meats obesity or being overweight, alcohol consumption, and tobacco use. And people may need to be screened earlier or more often if they have inflammatory bowel disease, genetic syndromes, or a personal or family history of colorectal cancer or polyps. Now, you said there are no, there are often no symptoms for colorectal cancer, but are there things that people should be watching for? Yes. People should contact their doctor if they notice a change in bowel habits, blood in their stool, or abdominal pains or aches and cramps that just don't go away. All right. Thank you so much for taking the time to break all of this down for us again, Dr. Sally Ann Coleman-King from the CDC. Uh, One more time, can you tell us about the Screen for Life website uh, with all the information on getting screened for colorectal cancer? Absolutely. The website is cdc.gov slash screen for life, and that's all one word. And it has information on how people can prevent colorectal cancer and ways to encourage others to get screened. But here's the thing that I really want your listeners to remember. If you're 45 or older, male or female, talk with your doctor about getting screened for colorectal cancer. It can save your life. All right, Dr. Sally Ann Coleman-King, again, Medical Director of the Colorectal Cancer Control Program at the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. This is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month, and the website, one more time, is cdc.gov slash screen for life. Dr. Coleman-King, thank you so much for your time and for breaking that down for us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for having me. All right, and that's going to do it for this edition of iHeartRadio Communities. As we wrap things up, I want to offer a big thanks to all of our guests and, of course, to all of you for listening. I'm Ryan Gorman. We'll be back same time, same place next weekend. Stay safe. Lucky Land. 
Sand Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.